Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Today, we'll be talking with a couple of local principals about school safety, which is on everyone's mind after yet another school shooting. Reporter Jackie Valley, who knows the district well, will join me to ask questions. And as always, we'll close with some to and fro on the issues of the day between myself and the Indies managing editor, Elizabeth Thompson. We'll chat about guns and public discourse. So let's get started with my recap of some of the week's headlines from the Nevada Independent. The week began with Jackie and Michelle Rendell's discovering that major elected Republican officials skipped a big Lincoln Day dinner in Douglas County featuring former Arizona Sheriff Joe Arpaio. This was only days after they attended one in Reno with known provocateur Dinesh D'Souza. Hard decisions these days for Adam Laxalt and Dean Heller, deciding which convicted felons to honor and which ones to snub. Michelle broke the story of the recently departed taxation director already raising funds from the pot entrepreneurs she just finished regulating. It's not exactly a revolving door, but maybe it's a door that opens and suddenly you have a lot of new thankful friends who needed your favor just a few weeks earlier. It's not unseemly at all. Megan Messerly attended a congressional forum in the race to succeed Jackie Rosen. Three Republicans were there and agreed on almost everything. Well, everything that is except who would be best to fill Rosen's shoes. In our biggest scoop of the week, so far at least, Riley Snyder discovered that the Senate Majority Leader helped push through a last-minute amendment that could directly benefit his employer, the state's most successful trial attorney. Aaron Ford's law partner, Robert Eglitz, surely was thrilled that the powerful legislator removed caps on what damages can be awarded in certain cases. By coincidence, Eglitz has won cases where damages can be very large. This is what you get with a citizen legislature, folks. We'll be back in a moment with those principles. We're back on Indie Matters, the podcast in the Nevada Independent with our guests. There are a couple of principals who participated in a roundtable about school safety that reporter Jackie Valley organized this week. Jackie is here today as well. You can see the full report on that eye-opening discussion in Sunday's Independent. Joining Jackie and me now are Travis Warnick from Shadow Ridge High School and John Anzalone of Sierra Vista High School. Welcome to Indie Matters, both of you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. All right, I'll let Jackie jump in uh, in, in a second, but I think what people are really wondering, maybe uh, we'll start with you, uh, Principal Anzalone, and then we'll uh, go to Travis Warnick, is that what the kids watch TV uh, of all ages. They've been watching all of this stuff on uh, in Florida. There was a town hall. We're recording this on Thursday. There was a town hall on CNN. Got a lot of viewership. You walk into school. What are the kids saying? It's a mixed bag. Some kids, you know, they don't, they don't pay attention at all to the news. Um, most are right in the middle. But then you have you have your kids who are very astute to political, the news, the what's going on in politics, what's going on in the world, and they're the ones who are knocking down our door. They're, they want they want to talk. They want to talk, and we want to let them talk. So. This week, uh, it's been interesting, and, and this has happened before, unfortunately. So it's unfortunately become kind of uh, uh, daily life for us, dealing with these tragedies. Uh, this one's been a little different, though, and I think Travis alluded to this the other day. This one's felt differently because it's, been high, it's a high school group of kids and uh, how much they're standing up. So our kids want to be a part of it. Um, they're kind of reaching out. What do we do? Uh, the parents are calling. How are you going to handle this? So it's been chaotic. And in the midst of all that, you're trying to keep some sort of uh, decorum in school. You're trying to keep kids, um, you know, engaged in the classroom. You're trying to keep the sports going, running these little towns that we run. But now uh, another kind of wrench gets thrown into it. And so we just have to adapt to it. But the main thing is we, we want to listen. We, we open our doors to the kids. And uh, each one kind of wants to react in a different way. Right now we're talking uh, together as principals on how we're each going to handle it. And we're trying to come to con some consensus um, to make it a little bit more uniform. How do you get involved but not get involved too much because you, you want the kids to still, you know, uh, demonstrate in, in their own way? Same at your school, uh, Principal Warnick? Or yeah, different? it's the same thing. We had a little roundtable with eight or ten kids this morning, and one of them said, you know, the Florida school looks just like ours. Not necessarily the buildings, but the kids. 
And one of them even said the desks look just like our desks. And that's why it's a little more raw. And this felt a little more raw and it's a little more real. But like John Anslone said, we need to take this and let them express their voices, but make it a learning experience. This is how we do it in a civilization. We don't throw rocks through windows, but there is a way in our country to express your voice and express your, your opinions the right way, not as an uncivilized savage. And, and that's what we need to, to train them in. And so what, what are you telling them to do? How, how, sh how should, I mean, there's obviously a lot of pent up emotions, right? Sure. You have them, all the principals have them, the teachers have them, the kids uh, have them, but fear has to be uh, still just coursing through every school yeah. after you mm -hmm. see something like that. What are you telling them? Uh, one thing we're looking at doing, at least at Shadow Ridge and some of the other principals we've talked about it, is we're gonna do our own series of town halls. Not to take a political stance one way or the other, but the town hall last night, just the power and the energy, if we can harness that in the right way. The CNN town hall? The CNN think? town hall. If we can harness that power and energy from these teens, I think it will be a fantastic event. So we're going to run our own series of town halls at Shadow Ridge and try and capitalize on that in a positive way, not just turn them loose and, and let them run rampant but we need to harness that energy because this generation has some serious energy and awareness that maybe we have been selling them short on. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and for us, I think leaders need to lead. And so uh, I took it upon myself at my school to call a staff meeting first and foremost, uh, put out a couple parent link messages like robocalls to all the parents. So that hits about 6,000 people right then and there, which includes the students who have cell phones that are connected to our database. Um, and so I think, like I said, leaders have to lead during this time, not bury our heads in the sand. And we've been getting a lot of good responses from parents. They may not always agree with the decision, but they like the fact that we're taking initiative. And that's the word I keep hearing is, thank you for taking the initiative. I had one mom today call me and say, um, thank you so much. When I dropped my daughter off this morning, I felt just a little bit safer because you called us. It didn't really even matter what I said. It was just the fact that, that I reached out and I called as the leader of the building. So I'm not always going to make the right, the perfect decision. But they want to hear. They want to hear from the leaders. I wanted to get your thoughts, too, as principals. You know, you're charged with keeping an entire campus safe of several thousand students. When something like this happens, um, it must weigh on you heavily. Um, can you talk a little bit about your worries and fears um, just from a safe safety standpoint and infrastructure-wise? Well, I know I, I think I could speak for Travis as well as myself. We're, we're fathers and husbands just the same as we are principals. And so um, when I go to school every day, for me, I think about those kids the same way as I would my own. And I really mean that. I, I, would, I would want any principal to think that way. And so I don't do anything differently than I do at my own house. I make sure the doors are locked. I make sure that there's no strange suspects walking around the building. So those are the kind of things we just do on a daily basis anyways. But now we're just, a, our, our awareness is a little bit more heightened. We're questioning a little bit more. We're looking a little bit deeper. We're checking IDs more feverishly. So you just become more heightened. It's almost like if, if you had a break-in at your house, you would probably lock the doors a little bit tighter and hug your kids a little bit tighter at night. That's kind of what happens with us because I think we're fathers first and, and principals either second or real close 1A, you know? Yeah. The other thing that hit me yesterday in a staff meeting and it hit me right between the eyes is not only were we fathers of 3,000 kids from 7 a.m. to 1.30 in the afternoon, but I've also got a staff of 150 teachers that I don't want them to have to make that choice. I want them to be able to go home to their kids. I want to go home to mine. I got a one-year-old. I've got a six-year-old, a 16-year-old, and a 21-year-old, and I want to go home and see them. But I don't want my teachers to have to make that choice either. So if I can prevent it, you better be sure I'm going to prevent it. From an architectural standpoint, you yeah. know, when we talked earlier this week, there was a, a lot of chatter about the different access points to the schools. Um, can you talk about what you would like to see maybe done with some of those sure. issues? At Shadow Ridge, we I counted again this morning. We walked the campus. Uh, we have 42 doors in and out of the building, about nine different access points, and that's a hard building to manage with kids coming and going and seniors with half schedules and maintenance people coming in and out. And we just have to redesign and, and I'm looking at ways that I can just flat out eliminate some of those access points. 
we have fire codes to meet and some other things to meet, but I need to redesign my building 15 years after it's been built. And that's going to cost me some money that I might not have, but I better find because I can't have nine access points in and out of the building without staff to monitor. And I think the same thing, we have the exact same building. I think it just may face a different direction. Um, and so we have the same amount of entries and exits. Um, we're looking at at adding extra security gates to the front. We've actually been thinking about that for a while. I think this is just spurring that conversation again. Um, we're talking about adding a security booth to the front where almost like a parking garage booth where you every single visitor has to pass through. We've been even throwing out the idea of possibly going to clear clear bags, bags and backpacks. Um, so unfortunately, like Travis said, all of this costs money and it's money we don't have. We're already on a shoestring budget, as you all know. Um, and I and I don't know exactly if it's going to be the, the, the state or the feds or a combination of both. Um, but if we don't get some support soon, we're going to be completely on our own and we're going to get to the point where we're choosing between an algebra textbook and a safety booth or a pencil and, you know, more security. Where, where, what's more important, the education or the safety? Right now it's safety. You know, what's really interesting to me is these, these are very complex issues and you can't – uh, uh, this word was used a lot in the roundtable. We had solved this problem. But the whole clear backpack thing, that seems like a no-brainer to me. Like, mm -hmm. why not mandate clear backpacks? Has this, yeah. Maybe I missed it. Has that been talked about? I know it's, I've been doing some reading on it. It has happened in other places. Why is that not mandated? Yeah, so we, we I didn't know that's been brought up before. It's good to know that other people are talking about it. Um, there's a lot of pushback on that, John. I think, um, you know, the kids want a, a little semblance of privacy. Uh, because because it hasn't happened, knock on wood, God forbid, it hasn't happened. The kids don't see it as globally. This is the first time where I think the kids are are protesting and, and act being active. So there's a semblance of hey, I, I I don't want somebody to see in my bag to see my where my wallet is or my iPhone is or maybe I have some cash on hand. Where do I put that? You know, for for girls, there's a semblance of privacy there. So I think the kids get a little upset about you're invading my privacy. And as a teenager, you remember, you want to have a little bit of privacy. Um, and then the parents, you know, you'd be surprised. It would probably be about 50-50 on parents. Even after this, how many parents would probably backlash on, how are you, who are you to tell me to go buy a, a $30 bag? Uh, at, and it's February. It's almost the end of the school year. Um, I'm, I'm hearing that already. So I ended up backing off of it just a little bit to give ourselves some more time to research, maybe look for some bags that have a small compartment of privacy. Um, but in my heart, I want to start it tomorrow. This is this is the debate, though, that's gone on in, in this country since 9-11, right? The tension between between uh, privacy and, and liberty and security. And so I, I'm just wondering, uh, again, I don't mean to portray this in a black and white because I think it's far from a black and white issue, but this kids sh coming to school with clear backpacks behind, beyond some concern that, oh, I, I have this stylish backpack that I like, which a lot of kids that age would do. I mean, I, I would rather feel safe in my school than, 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 than have something stylish or be worried that someone might see something in my backpack. Well, are, are kid, do, do you talk about that at your school? Yeah, we actually, at the, at the kids I met with this morning, we've talked about the, the balance between liberty and privacy. And when our liberty is taken, uh, or our privacy is forfeited sometimes, and that's not a good situation, but safety trumps it all. And sometimes that's, you know, that's what principals have to do and, and leaders have to do is we have to make hard decisions. And I'm not saying I'm going to clear backpacks. I haven't put that much thought into it yet. But we have to make the hard decisions. Can you that, make that decision or would that have to go through the district? Can you make, no, I can make you it. Have, you're empowered yeah. to do that yourself. To make okay. yeah. But I have to yeah. make sure it's right. And if those are the steps we take... And I have to be – have enough spine to make the decision and stand up and make it. And when desperate times, we need to make those decisions and lead the way and make sure my kids go home safe. It doesn't matter what backpack they're taking as long as they get home for dinner. Earlier this week, too, we talked about, you know, how there's two sides to this. There's the severe catastrophic school shootings. But on the other hand, there's also just this rising level of violence that you see both in schools and just in society in general. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, balancing those two and and how we move forward just 
creating safer campuses overall, even students among students on a daily basis? Well, like I said, there, there are some parameters that we have to do um, immediately. Um, we, we've, been, we've been balking at the front door access for a while, and, and mainly it comes down to manpower. You know, every time we say, okay, we're going to put a campus monitor always at the front entrance. Well, we have a huge campus. Both Travis and I have huge campuses. So now all of a sudden you're using your resources just for the front. So now you're taking somebody away from another area. Do we put our CCSD police officer in the front? Now all of a sudden there's something that goes down in the gym or the cafeteria or in a hallway. Now that person is locked towards the front of the school. So, you know, there's some immediate things we have to do, but again, it comes comes down to resources and um, we just we're very limited in what we have yeah and I think from the day-to-day escalation the one thing that 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 ties these two the day-to-day escalation and violence and and violent offenses at a school and these major incidents it's a societal issue it is not a CCSD issue it's not a Shadow Ridge issue it is a countrywide cultural thing of not understanding who we are as a people and devaluing order and, and decorum and, and devaluing the value of life. And, so, you know, and, and just to piggyback on that, I think, I think every generation says, well, kids are different, kids are different. There is something a little different with this generation. And I love my students and I wouldn't do this job if I didn't. But there there has become a little bit of a desensitization, I think, um, a lack of filter at times. Um, and, and I don't know if that's a combination of the social media, the fact that everything is on YouTube. Uh, you can see violence. You can see anger. Um, everything is instant. And so with that said, I think I think our kids are desensitized now, um, even from a young age. I, I'm, I'm, I have a 10-year-old son, and I would guess that he's probably seen more and is more worldly than I ever would be. And I, I come from a very overprotective Italian mother, and I'll tell you, it doesn't matter. This, these kids are a little bit more worldly. One thing we've noticed is, is with social media especially is there is a lack of social skills with this generation. One-to-one, face-to-face conversations and how to resolve those issues don't exist. But at the same time, this group is way more connected and plugged into global issues than we ever were. So they don't have the one-to-one skills that we grew up with, but they are very current event savvy in what's happening in Singapore because it's so fast and and what happened in Florida. And so we have to adjust who we're talking to. Our audience that we're leading is very different than the world we grew up in. When you say desensitized, I think that's – because it, it is kind of a paradox. They are desensitized in some ways because they've seen so much. They're, exp- they've, they're, they're exposed to so much more. On the other hand, because of social media, they are sensitized more to, to, to different things. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I'm wondering, I mean, that's almost impossible to police. Right. I mm-hmm. mean, if you're the principal or the teacher, that's up to the parents uh, to some extent. But that's got to be one of the one of the gateways to some of the violence that's occurring right on yeah. campus on a regular basis, whether it's, uh, as Jackie alluded to, the catastrophic type of things or just the I mean, that was an eye opening experience for me, the, the roundtable that we had earlier this week in so many different ways. But just what you're dealing with every day as you were talking about these violent incidents with kids where they're getting different kind, They have access to different kinds of messages that when I was going to school, uh, they were just they just weren't there. Right. Well, yeah. C- Captain Captain Young once told me that there are actually YouTube videos out there where kids can learn what to say and how far you can push a police officer uh, without getting arrested under un- 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 the First Amendment. Captain Young, we should just tell people with the yeah. school district police. Yeah, Captain Young, and, and this is an offline conversation that him and I had once about the fact that uh, they can they can see those things. So go- going back to the, the kids, you're right. They're, 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 they've seen a lot more. Um, and our four walls of our school have expanded tremendously because back when we were all children, uh, if you had it out with your buddy, right, it was pretty much over then. But now it's just beginning because that's going to be on social media. When when you see a fight on campus, the phones come out like you're at a rock concert. It's not hard to find evidence of a fight. You just Look to the left, look to the right, and there's a video of it. So that said, that's now being pro- projected onto 
every bit of social media that's out there. So before you know it, your school has a reputation. Um, the kids are talking about it. And by the time Monday comes, that student is so riled up because they've been pushed and pushed and pushed all weekend long. And yeah, it may go away after a while, but now you start bringing in the social emotional part of it. All of a sudden I'm thinking about hurting myself because everybody on campus hates me. Or I'm, you know, we have, we have had young ladies that have been recorded with their boyfriends, you know, and things like that. And they become suicidal at times because that video gets out there. But, but, but the flip side too, I, I want to, I want Travis to jump in here is that, it, yeah, you have a fight on a Friday and one one, per, one kid loses the fight badly and he's ridiculed on social media all weekend long. You worry about the flip side, don't you, that that's the kid That's that the snaps. kid that's going to come back and suddenly it goes from day-to-day violent issues to major catastrophic issues. And I think that that is the thread that we've been missing is how do we take that day-to-day issue and prevent it? from escalating to a catastrophic universal issue because because the world they're living in is so far and away different than the world I lived in. But we have got, I've got to change and learn how to live in their world to help them get through it. It almost seems like we have to start younger though. I mean, it's something that you guys probably can't ingrain in someone who's already 15 or 16 years old. What would you like to see at the elementary levels? One thing, one thing we... I went to Harbor this morning, which is a city program that is really working. And we've worked, John and I, with elementary school principals to try and find all of the community resource, community resources that are out there and try and harvest them and get them to the elementary schools. Because if we can help clean them up and, and steer them in the right direction in six or eight years, my job suddenly becomes a lot easier. Because to change a 15-year-old is almost impossible for anyone that's raising a 15-year-old. Can't do it. So one of the suggestions that we've come up with is we would like to disperse our social worker, uh, our social workers throughout the, the different feeders. So rather than, even though it's been based on population and need, um, if Travis and I both have 3,000 students, you know, we feel like the social workers are important, but we also have six or seven guidance counselors where an elementary school may only have one counselor. So I would like to see the social worker program expanded, whether that means federally or statewide, um, and then divvied evenly, uh, more evenly throughout the feeder. So every elementary school, in my opinion, and I believe there's about 200 in this district, should have one social worker at least. Every middle school should have at least one, and I think we should have at least one or two. Rather than stockpile it on the, high, uh, on the upper grade levels, even, even distribution throughout. We need to give some more resources to the younger. But prevention, we've been preaching this for a long time. We need to get out of this school-to-prison pipeline. And the way we do that is we start in kindergarten and, and linking up with community members, not just the schools. And we've got to do this together. Uh, one of the things that was truly frightening to me in that roundtable that we had, and you mentioned Captain Young, we had a couple of law enforcement folks in there, is that uh, essentially both of them uh, uh, indicated that catastrophic events may have almost occurred in the past here in the Clark County School District. And one of them, I believe, and Jackie can correct me, said it's not a matter of if – but when? You guys believe that? Absolutely. It's yeah. not a matter of if, but when, and our job is to decrease the odds to a million to one. But it, it will happen. I just hope it's in the year 3050, not 2018. Um, and that, it, it, it is impossible to c- control 3,000 teenagers in the world they're living in, but our job is to make sure that we decrease those odds and we are so much into the prevention and being aware. And quite honestly, the only way we can do that is to have open dialogue with the kids because they're the ones that will know before it happens. Yeah, I agree. We're, we're one student away. Um, I, when I was speaking to my staff yesterday, my counselors were kind of sitting off to the left. And uh, when I said that exact same statement, I looked over at them and they were all nodding their heads. I said, how many do you do pop pop into your head immediately when I speak about this? And each of them said two to three. Uh, now, in, in, in the grand scheme of things, out of 3,000 kids, that doesn't seem like a lot, but it only takes one. So how are we making sure that we're wrapping our arms around those kids? Um, we're doing everything we can, um, and we just, have, we just have to be vigilant. Every, every hand on deck. And, John, you mentioned the parents. Um, we need their help as well. Let us – don't be, don't be shy. Don't be gun-shy to tell us 
that your kid is in therapy or your kid has had therapy. Don't be shy about that. It's okay. You know, any parents that are listening out there, I would tell them, reach out to us. Tell us their history because not everything shows up in our system. If, if, uh, if you have a child that's had some sort of, uh, you know, therapeutic you know, mental health, let us know. Um, you know, and we're we're pretty good at handling that in a discreet manner, but making sure that we're all safe, including the kid that has been in the therapy or or in the mental health world. Problem is, of course, and I had a kid go through the school system. Sure. It's hard to make, and you deal with all kinds of different teachers, all kinds sure. of different parents. You can't. It's very hard for to build that you, trust and and to make a, par- a bad parent a good parent, right? And it's not something you can control. It's frustrating, I'm sure. You can't discuss this, though, and this came up today. I, I mentioned again we're recording this uh, on Thursday. This morning, uh, President Trump uh, had this listening session, and it came up there, and it came up in the CNN town hall, this issue of maybe it's time that we start arming teachers. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it it's, seems crazy to some people to even talk about it. Others say, you know what? It's long overdue. Is it insane? John, I'm a diehard Texas Republican. Uh, I get where it's coming from, but as long as I am the principal at Shadow Ridge, I will not let my teachers carry. For the simple reason of, I have teachers that have their cell phones stolen off their desk. I don't need a gun stolen off their desk. I have a teacher that might go break up a fight, and somehow his gun that was in his holster becomes dislodged. Or heaven forbid, one of these catastrophic incidents, the police are just told, we have an armed person in our building. And they come in like they're supposed to sweep the room looking for an armed person. And my teacher comes around the corner carrying, they're not going to ask him a question. And I don't need that. I want people that are well-trained to come and take care of my business. I trust the law enforcement officers out there that I trust them. I don't necessarily, my teachers are well-trained to teach, not to enter classrooms and disarm a suspect. What about just a few teachers, the ones that could be trained? That's what that's yeah. what the president was sure. saying this morning. Maybe maybe we just need to have a few of the teachers who have gone through rigorous training. Might be ex-military, for instance. What about that? Yeah, that's that's where I'm not going to disagree with Travis, but I, that's where I would be a, a little bit more open-minded to looking at um, some of our ROTC instructors. We have two um, highly trained, decorated, uh, you know, mil- uh, military servicemen who are retired, and um, as long as they I think they would need to pass some sort of a, you know, a mental mental fitness test. Uh, I think even the president, you know, went through one of those. Uh, and I, I think if they went through a mental fitness test, um, you know, we we felt in our gut that they were physically and mentally capable of doing that. Um, I would not have a problem with that. I'd actually feel more secure with that. But um, I agree with Travis. We have teachers all the time that, hey, I lost my key. Uh, hey, I lost my phone. I mean, we're all we're all guilty of that. Um, so I'd be a little nervous. I have 98 teachers on campus. Um, and my worry is, is how do I start making those judgments? Do, am I, that's on me now. So if I make the wrong judgment there and some teacher ends up going postal at the school, now that's on me. And now we've, you know, in, in, increased the problem. We've perpetuated the problem. So I'd much rather look at a very, like you said, John, a very small, finite group, three, maybe three or four at the most that either are former military or former police. I do have a teacher that's a former police officer. Um, those are the teachers I'd look at, but, but just your everyday teacher. No, I, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, and you said it's something interesting in terms of maybe a teacher snapping. So we talk a lot about, you know, wrapping kids in services and trying to prevent them, you know, from bullying that may lead to something like this. But it seems like the fact is, you know, this could really be anyone walking in a school. I mean, Adam Lanza wasn't a student at Sandy Hook. Um, so it's more of a community problem. Well, and even in Florida last week, he was a former student. Right. He was and a 19-year-old former student. So, yeah. And wasn't Adam connected to the school in some way? If I remember that that, that shooter, wasn't his mother an employee there? So, I, I, if yeah, I remember, and he, grew, he killed he, his mother right before this happened. Yeah. Yeah. He grew but up I, in the town, I right. believe. Okay. I, I had, if I remembered right, I thought the school personnel had known him. They recognized him because I believe they had a buzzer system, so they let him in. But there, there always seems to be some connection. It, it's rarely rare, rare that there's a complete stranger that goes into these schools, which I don't know if that's better or worse. 
So we only have a few minutes left, and I guess I want to ask this question just because of the discussion we had the other day and the one we're having now and just watching all of this stuff going on and, and seeing these kids talk. And they, they're amazing, some of these kids from Florida. And, and yeah. they're more articulate and smarter than a lot of the politicians and <laughs> people write, writing about this. But And let me start with you, Principal Anselone, first. When you got into this business— you didn't think that you'd have to deal with these kinds of issues as much as you would. Do you ever wake up? I'm just really wondering. Do you ever wake up and say, why am I still doing this? No, not one day. Um, I, I started a year after Columbine, and um, it never crossed my mind. Um, it has crossed my family's mind. Um, you know, I, I think sometimes I wake up and my wife, you know, uh, she'll kiss me g- goodbye and, and say, just be, be safe. I never thought I'd have to hear those words. I didn't go into law enforcement. Um, you know, like I said, my, my, some of my family members are more concerned, but it doesn't because I, I, I've always been someone who likes to try to fix problems. And so this has actually kind of reinvigorated me a little bit to really look at these issues and see how I can you know, not single-handedly, but how can I lead my kids through that? That, that to me, is important work. So, no, I haven't asked. I've asked that other times when I've had other situations and students and teachers that driven me nuts. Uh, but, no, for some reason, that doesn't cross my mind. Travis? Well, because I have kids, I don't want to sound arrogant, but there's nobody I want protecting my kids more than me. And so I'll, I'll be there and take care of my kids, all 3,000 of them. And there's no one I would rather have do that than me because I trust myself. And maybe that's, that's the wrong outlook, but I know I'll take care of my kids. And so I can't have regrets. Do you, do you talk to your co- any of your colleagues who, who have, are, are willing or have just said they've had enough? It's, I don't want to deal with these issues. I'm going to go into something else. We have a lot of them. We have a lot of teachers too that are just, I, you know, a single mom yesterday told me, I'm the lone provider for my family. I've got to get home at night. I, I didn't come into this job to worry about my safety. And she's looking. Yeah, John, we have, we have you, you know as well as I do, we have such a difficult time with recruitment of teachers and retention of teachers. This can't help. This can't help. You know, it, it, uh, this is going to make it even tougher. I really think we need to get back to face-to-face recruiting and getting out there and meeting teachers and inviting them to come to our schools and our town uh, because uh, we're, we're going be, to be in some desperate times, uh, desperate times here. Gentlemen, uh, it's been a real pleasure meeting uh, both of you the last couple of days doing this. I I hope people listen and they realize how much it's clear to me that you both love your kids. You're you're, you're dealing with this problem and and that you really just want to do best. I hope the dialogue will continue. I hope at some point you'll come back maybe in a few months and tell us uh, what kinds of things are going on at your school. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being here. And Jackie, thanks uh, for for helping me out here. Thanks for taking this on. Thank you. Appreciate it. Be back in a moment with Elizabeth Thompson. Welcome back to Indie Matters, the podcast in the Nevada Independent. As usual, at this point in the podcast, Elizabeth Thompson, my number two and biggest fan and critic at the same time. Welcome. Wow, that's true, actually. I think it is. It is. I'm, I'm always accurate, Elizabeth. We, we both know that. <laughs> We've, that's been well established. So... Uh, Let's let's just spend some time talking about all the issues, some of which were raised in the podcast and have been raised since uh, what happened in, in Parkland. And uh, people should know. Uh, I, I think you'll be okay with me saying this. You you are more conservative than I am. I think you're a gun owner yourself. I've never owned a gun. Um, uh, we come at this from I think a little bit different perspectives. Although I've had my eyes opened. Uh, in a lot of different ways over the years about the gun issue. And I think that there's too much narrow-mindedness on both sides, which you can say about a lot of issues in politics, but especially uh, this one. Uh, I don't know how much you saw, if any, of the CNN uh, uh, town hall or the president's meeting this morning, but what thoughts have been occurring to you since this whole debate has been reignited? Well, I think the thing that strikes me each and every time there's a mass shooting, especially in these last, let's say, five years, is that it's the same old rhetoric from both sides each and every time. And there don't seem to be any new thoughts, new ideas, or new suggestions, which is frustrating to me as a person who cares about policy, uh, because... You know, it's easy to agree with some of the more general rhetoric on both sides, right? It seems 
inherently obvious and intuitive that if indeed we had fewer AR-15s and other automatic weapons floating around, we would probably have fewer mass shootings. That, that's math. So I can agree with that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. And by how much they would be reduced, we don't know. And there's a strong argument to be made that gets made often, which is that you know the people who have no intention and would never think of using a gun to shoot another person are the people who probably would most easily give up their guns in the first place. You know, it's the deranged, angry people who are keeping a stockpile of guns just in case, you know, they may they might want to use them someday. How do you get those people to give up the guns they already own? And how do you prevent them from acquiring guns illegally or on the black market, which frankly is not that difficult to do these days? There's all kinds of sites on the black internet where you can go buy a gun that's been scrubbed, the serial numbers have been filed off, you can do it you could do it right now in Las Vegas. It would probably take you about an hour to figure out how to do it if you were a motivated person. So gun laws in and of themselves are not the answer either. You know, it's interesting because you're absolutely right about the rhetoric. Uh, it's so frustrating. A after every one of these incidents, the rhetoric is the same. And you saw it in, in an exaggerated way at that town hall on CNN. The NRA is evil. The NRA uh, is, is, is equivalent to murder, murderers. And on the other side, you have the NRA. Oh, and, and gun rights folks always talking about these law-abiding citizens who, of course, are law-abiding citizens until they're not. And so it's, it, you know, uh, and is it right to talk about uh, uh, social workers and mental health and all the rest of it? But there's so many interlocking pieces here. And you and I could sit here and have a philosophical discussion for hours about the degradation of society and discourse. And the principles themselves mentioned the desensitization generally uh, of people from, from normal social interactions because we spend so much time on our phones or, or playing video games or watching movies or doing don't interact in the way. Uh, th th that we used to. But what really worries me the most is, is, is what you brought up is that there doesn't seem to be any middle ground. And I mentioned this to you uh, last night and this morning, and I'm, I'm not reeling from it anymore, but I, I thought Marco Rubio actually uh, deserved credit for showing up to what he knew was going to be just these people in pain and anger. There were two Democrats up on stage with him who just presented the usual rhetoric. And listen, you can criticize Marco Rubio. I got I'm still getting a social media hailstorm on Twitter because I said he deserves some credit. You know, you can say he's smarmy. You can say whatever you want. If you don't like him, he deserved credit for showing what was the upside. For, and the fact that people won't even give him credit for well, that's his job to do. Well, it's not his job to have to go to a CNN town hall. I just I find this intolerance. Uh, 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 it's it's really, really, to me, this is the disconnect from, from any possible solution. Yeah, well, look, if you're a Republican and you've taken money from the NRA, as far as a large segment of the left is concerned, then you're complicit in what's going on in these mass shootings. To me, that is outrageous and unfair. Plenty of Republicans in this country are very good people. They may or may not be NRA Members, They certainly don't condone what happened any more than anyone else, and they're certainly not personally responsible for what happened any more than anyone else. Um, I, I'll disagree with you on one thing. I kind of think it is Marco Rubio's job to show up at a town hall in his state on an issue like this when something like that happens. I think a lot of U.S. senators and congresspeople duck out of these things all the time, and they're not doing their jobs. And they, But in their defense, they know they're going to get yelled at. And they know they're going to get ridiculed on national TV by people who are so dismissive and so eager to judge and so eager to decide that, you know, Marco Rubio, he has no soul. You know, give me a break with this uh, kind of nonsense. We are most of us, you know, sane citizens who care about our country. You know, let's try to ramp it down and, you know, and, and have for once uh, an intelligent conversation about this. Part of the problem I just keep thinking about the fact that on the one hand, you've got the math, and on the other, other hand, you've got the emotions of having kids gunned down and, and families ripped apart. That That is part of the reason that we have such a hard time finding a middle ground on this, because if you talk about the math, then everyone who's upset thinks you're a jerk. And if you only talk from a place of emotion, then people who want to talk about the math think you're 
illogical, right? Uh, and that's another reason that we can't get on the same page. Page, but if you do start talking about the numbers, it's it's mind-boggling, and it, it can be. I think to me, I get frustrated because I, you know, I can't even come up with a solution that I necessarily think would be a great idea because the only thing that these mass shooters have in common is that they're angry males. Well, guess what? There are about 90 million adult males in this country. Let's just say 5% of them are really angry. And what small percentage of those are people that actually have the potential to commit a crime like this? And how can we expect whether it's school principals or law enforcement or social workers or gun shop owners or next door neighbors or even the person's wife uh, or auntie or you know whomever to look into that person's mind and into that person's soul and decide that they have the potential to commit this heinous crime and then prevent it. It's but but you can't. And that's and I don't. This is, I always thought this was somewhat of an obnoxious saying that people do say very glibly. But let's not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You are not going to stop these things from happening. They're going to happen. But can you minimize the number of them happening? Yes. How how do you do that, boy? Uh, There's no easy solution there. And the problem is, is one side says, "Oh, you're going to try to confiscate all of the guns," and the other side on the on the far end says, "Yeah, okay." That sounds pretty good to me. And of course, neither of those things have anything to do with what we're talking about. So what is reasonable? Uh, and you say, well, everyone agrees, even the majority of NRA members agree on universal background checks. Well, how do you do the universal background checks? How are you going to pay for them? Who's going to do them? And what are you going to do if, if in, in, in this case, is a perfect example, if law enforcement doesn't do its job and, and, and things are not passed through the right database from federal to state databases? Right, but let's be clear on this most recent shooting. This wasn't about the failure. Failure of the background check. No, no, I know. System. I'm just talking this about this was a failure at the FBI. They acknowledged today they got a tip from a concerned person who knew this young man, and they procedure wasn't followed and it didn't get followed up on. So in this particular case, we know that there was an error there. It well, there's happen. many failures of law enforcement in this one. It just came out this morning that the sheriff there said his deputy was there at the school and didn't go in. I mean, so there, but there's going to be human failures in any operation until you know the computers take over the world, right? So right. we're we're going we're to have that. But the question is, what what should government do, and what should what should government not do? I'm probably more of a big government person uh, th- th- than you are. I think that's are. safe to say. <laughs> but I just I, I there's limits, right? There's limits on what government can do. For instance, this big thing they're talking about that even the president seems to say, let's not let anyone under 21 have a rifle. Or a semi-automatic weapon, or, or and let's ban bump stocks. Oh, okay, that'll solve everything. Well, it won't solve everything, but it's a it's an incremental step. Although, if we're not going to let young men under the age of twenty one have rifles, we they won't be signing up for the military, I guess, then either. So we have to change that as well. And then we should talk about whether they're allowed to purchase alcohol or anything else at that same age. And I actually don't disagree. I'm just playing devil's advocate a little bit. I, I think we do live in an age now where. I hate to say this, but young people stay younger for longer nowadays. They don't grow up quite as fast. And so I I kind of agree. I'm not sure that the average 18 to 21-year-old necessarily needs to be owning a rifle or doing these things. And maybe we should talk about you know, an age, uh, an age restriction on this type of thing. I think we've got a majority opinion in the country now on the bump stocks. I'm not hearing too many people speak out against banning bump stocks, but that wouldn't have made any difference in this particular situation. What would have made a difference is if, you know, he didn't have the high, uh, you know, the the ammunition magazine uh, that enabled him to file quite fire quite so many bullets at the at the same time. You know, I, I, one of the one of the uh, advantages, and maybe one of the few advantages of getting older, is that you get a different perspective on things. You're not as quick to say, "Oh, the other side is is definitely wrong." And just let's, I mean, I hate guns. I shot a gun once with a friend of mine who used to work at the newspaper, and he was he had a lot of guns, and he said, "You you know, you can't talk about gun policy without coming out and doing this with me, Ralston." So I did. It was a tremendously frightening experience. This was not a big gun; it was just a small gun, uh, and and and, and just having the power of that, it scared me. But I'll tell you something else. When he talked about gun policy then, and this was a long time ago, but when I listen now, people want to ridicule when the NRA talks about, and, and, and uh, Wayne LaPierre talked about this just today, the slippery slope. Uh, and, and, and the other side just wants to say, oh, there's no well-regulated militia now. That, that part of the segment doesn't, doesn't even exist. There was a reason 
a more general reason that is applicable today as it was uh, back in the 18th century about if you let if you take away all the guns, then only the government has guns. Now, I, I don't, I mean, it's obviously we're not talking about uh, the revolution against King George now, but we are talking about if people don't have the right to own weapons, uh, then only one group of people is going to have weapons. Well, and, right. and people ridicule that on the left, I think. I, yes, I think they do, too, because they trust their government absolutely and completely. And in this country, I guess it's more understandable than in almost any country in the world that you would trust your government to that degree. But you look at the countries on the, around the world where, you know, we're all looking on in horror at, at what's happening because the citizens aren't armed and the government is tyrannical and they are gunning down people in the streets and the, and the regular citizens don't have any hope of fighting back because they, they don't have any arms. The best argument to me, though, in favor of the Second Amendment um, isn't whether I'm worried about, you know, taking up arms against the government. I, I absolutely want the right to defend my person and my own home. The re- I rarely carry my gun uh, outside my house. Every now and then if I'm traveling up to Utah and I know I'm going to be in the rurals, you know, running around, you know, I, I will just because I want to, you know, make sure I'm okay. But for the most part, the reason I own a gun is that if someone bashes my front door down, or figures out how to get in my house, and they are armed, my only hope is to be armed. And that doesn't even guarantee it. And I will, I, I would fight to the death for that, right? Because there, I don't believe there's any way that people uh, in this country, especially women who live alone, uh, should be expected to live in a world that is sometimes just violent uh, and, and set themselves up to be a victim. Yeah, and, and you know, there's even objections to that, which I think you make a compelling case, and 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 I completely understand that. Oh well, you know, then there should be, there has to be laws that res- that restrict where you can keep your gun in your house, and that it has to be locked up at all times because some someone might come over and not know what they're doing with their gun, with your gun, and accidentally shoot shoot themselves, or some six year old's going to come over and you've left your gun on the table. Now I know you, you're a very responsible person. That would never happen. But I covered things like that it, 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 it does happen and sure. so that that's that's the argument that people Understood. use but, but there you know irresponsible human beings make all kinds of errors and not just with guns and people get hurt and die as a as a result we don't have quite as many conversations about these other situations people who are careless behind the wheel of a car for example so i don't mean i'm not trying to make light of it i'm just trying to say that human beings are they're fallible uh, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to be careless, usually because they don't think bad things are going to happen to them until those bad things happen. Yeah, well, uh, we, we need to, you and I could uh, ra- uh, go on about this for for a long time. I already think that the Indy Matters town hall has been better than the CNN town hall. <laughs> However, I, I just I guess I think we should all keep this in mind during this election year when things are just going to get worse in terms of the rhetoric that's used. When anyone who supports the NRA is going to be called a murderer, and 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 the other side is going to say they want they're coming for your guns. It's a slippery slope. That we as journalists have an obligation. Even though I may have strong feelings about guns, you may have strong feelings about guns, we have an obligation to make these politicians and these candidates go beyond the boilerplate rhetoric that you began this discussion uh, decrying. And I really wish that the media, and I, I hope we set the example, Elizabeth, that we're not just going to let that kind of stuff go on. I hope so, too, but I don't know how we can prevent it. I mean, we'll, at the Indy, we'll certainly write what stories we can, and we already have, right, about the you know background check uh, law issues that are floating back and forth uh, here in Nevada. You know, if certainly if there are any more incidents of gun violence, of mass violence. Uh, and by the way, I looked it up. I was curious. The definition of a mass shooting even varies between law enforcement agencies. Um, generally, federal authorities consider that if if four or more people other than the shooter are killed, that's considered uh, a mass shooting. And there were close to as many of them as there are days in the year last year in this country. However, I also did some research and found out that something that gets frequently said in the United States is actually not true. Although the ins- the number of incidents is higher here than in many, many countries, that's a product of our high population. Um, we're a very large country compared to many, many countries in the world. When you talk about deaths by gun at a rate per million, 
we're not high on that list, actually. Countries like Serbia and Albania and Macedonia, and I could go on and on, and there's a bunch of them in the Middle East are ahead of us in terms of the rate. So one of the things I think we can do as journalists is talk about those facts just to get things in perspective. That's not to downplay what's going on here. And I, and I do think we need to keep talking about it and some policy changes probably do need to happen. But I just I would like to see everyone make an effort to be a little more intellectually honest about the facts so that we're all at least starting from that basis when we talk about solutions. And that's really what I was suggesting is that our responsibility as journalists is to fact check these statements. If they're just pure rhetoric uh, and uh, as everybody I hope knows, the Indie Matters has a, a robust fact checking uh, component. Elizabeth Thanks, as always, uh, for coming on and talking about a pressing issue. We'll talk to you next week. Yep. A reminder, uh, and please, you should mark your calendars for this. Our podcast is on uh, uh, the radio now on KUNV. That's UNLV's radio station, 8.30 on Thursdays. As I always love to like to say, we love our partnership uh, with the university, and we have announced another special event at UNLV. That's March 26th. It's a Monday evening. We're going to do a state of pot. We're calling it an indie forum, and we're going to talk about marijuana laws. It's legal now in Nevada. We're going to talk about law enforcement, social, economic. It's going to be a very comprehensive program, and our own uh, pot reporter expert, Michelle Rendells, will, will be there too. Uh, so go to the events page on the NV Indie website. We've got some preliminary information about the event there. We'll be adding information uh, as we plan it out. We're going to have a couple of great panels. We're going to open it with a fun cocktail hour. Uh, we've got sponsors coming on board. We'd like to thank the Nevada Dispensary Association for coming on as the first sponsor. Um, but we've got about 700 chairs. Uh, and it should be fun. I expect those chairs to, to fill up. We're going to open registrations very soon. Uh, and those registrations were open first to members of the Indy. So if you are not yet a member and you're listening to this podcast and you want a prime seat, we encourage you to check that out. One of the many reasons I love Elizabeth, she always thinks of saying the important stuff that I forget to say. That's all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. I want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us at ideas at dnvindy.com. Please check out the site, the nevadaindependent.com. A lot of great information there. Rate us on iTunes and subscribe, and you can also find us on Google Play. And I need to get us on Stitcher, Elizabeth. I got I keep forgetting. I'm to sorry, do. what? Yeah, so that's what I thought you'd say. <laughs> and I also want to thank both of those principals and for Jackie Valley for being here for that great discussion earlier. And as always, I want to thank our wonderful hosts here at KUNV on the campus of of UNLV and last but never least many thanks to Joey Lovato who's our fantastic producer who makes some of us sound podcast smooth some of us I'm John Ralston thanks for listening to Indie Matters and we'll talk to you next week Bye.